Radio Mano Papachango. Checking in from Topanga, California. Somebody pointed out that I said California all the time, and then I stopped saying it, and I kind of miss it. So I'm back in California. Uh, this is uh, a conversation I had with uh, an actor, stand-up comic named Alan Havy. If you don't know his name, uh, Google him. You'll recognize his face. He's everywhere. I met him at a party a couple of months ago at Jake Johansson's place. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, "Mm, I know that guy. How do I know that guy? And in LA, when you have that feeling, it often means they're in entertainment. Uh, You know, a normal outside of LA life, it means, you know, the guy, you met him at a party, you see him at the grocery store, you know, whatever, you've seen him around. But in L.A., it can often be like, hmm, yeah, familiar. Well, not really. I remember I had that experience. I was sitting uh, in a waiting room um, when I was pitching TV shows. I was at the talent agency, and I had just checked in at the front desk, and I was sitting there waiting for someone to come and you know escort me to the office where the meeting was. And this woman sat down next to me, and we started chatting. She was really nice, kind of sexy. But I was like, where did I... And I, I said to her just spontaneously, like, yeah, you know, we're, you and I know each other. We've met somewhere. And I saw, you know, there's this recognition on her face, like, like you're not used to this, are you, buddy? Uh, she was the woman from The Office, uh, the uptight, blonde, kind of sexy ice queen from The Office. I don't remember the character's name or the actor's name, but she was really nice. Um, anyway, the Alan Havy, yeah, he's been in all sorts of things. So I met him at this party and then I told this story recently, maybe on Rogan's podcast, maybe here, maybe both places. I tend to repeat myself. Uh, I was talking with him and Jake about the film, the aristocrats, which I recommend to anyone who, uh, is listening to this podcast, because if you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in comedy and the way we think. And I imagine, I can't imagine anyone listening to this podcast who is easily offended or doesn't have a good sense of humor. Uh, anyway, the, the movie, the aristocrats, I think it's produced by, um, Penn Gillette, the, the magician slash, I guess he's a comic. I don't know. Uh, Social critic. He's he's an interesting guy. Multifaceted dude. Um, Anyway, it's about a a joke that comics all tell each other. And they all riff on this joke. Uh, And the point of the joke within the sort of backstage comedy scene is to make it as offensive as you possibly can. So the entire point is to like cross whatever line you can find and just cross it. And it's almost like a competitive thing where, you know, people will just come up with all sorts of amazing ways to make the joke even more offensive than than it was before. Um, So it's 
it's a very interesting film. Anyway, I was talking with Jake and uh, and Alan about how comics think differently, and we were talking about this uh, these episodes of the Doug Stanhope podcast, um, the cliffhanger episodes, two episodes where there's they're dealing with some fear and um, and uh, negative emotions, but they're doing it um, with laughter, and and so. Anyway, we're talking about this cognitive difference between comics and normal people. And I mentioned the the film and they were both like, oh, yeah, that's a great film. It definitely addresses this point, blah, blah, blah. So then I came home and I put on the film because I had it on my hard drive somewhere, turned on the film. Uh, and there's Jake and Alan both in the film. So after that, then I start seeing Alan everywhere. I saw him on uh, the The Man in the High Castle. He plays, if you've seen that, he plays a guy in the first season who's like an undercover agent or something. And he's like making or little origami, uh, paper statues. I don't know what you call origami things, the product of origami activity. Um, so if you've seen that, that's him. Uh, if you've seen the Coen brothers film, um, Oh, Caesar, Caesar, Hail Caesar, that's it. I was going to say, oh, Caesar, where art thou? That's oh, brother, where art thou? Another Coen Brothers film. Hail Caesar, he's in that. Uh, he's in. He was in Mad Men, two seasons at least of Mad Men, I think he said. He's all over the place. So you'll recognize the guy's face. And he also had, uh, he's had a very interesting and varied career. He's done a lot of stand-up. He's uh, been on a lot of shows, as I mentioned. He had his own talk show called uh, Night After Night, which, as we discuss here in the podcast, I think is sort of a precursor to the podcast in a way, because they sort of rebelled against a lot of the forms, the typical forms that were expected of a talk show. Uh, Like they had an audience of one person and they had all these quirky characters they they just it was totally free and they sort of did what they wanted to do and and it seemed that they were unrestrained by the expectations of the medium of television which i think is one of the things that's happening with podcasts their podcasts are unrestrained by the expectations of whatever medium it is um you know that we're expected that some people would expect us to follow whether it be radio or television or whatever uh you know we can use whatever language we want we can cut in and out do whatever the fuck we want so uh i think he sort of anticipated that in some ways with his show night after night so check him out alan havey h-a-v-e-y you can google him and you'll find a plethora of material uh, he's been on Letterman a bunch of times, you know, all the late night talk shows and Conan and all that stuff. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm going to leave the ranting for another day. I've got another Roma in the mix, so I'll save my ranting for that. Uh, it's Saturday. This will go out uh, tomorrow night, Sunday night, Monday morning, depending what part of the world you're in. Tonight, I'm going to do a live podcast recording for Cracked.com in Hollywood. Uh, apparently, it's sold out. I don't know how big the theater is, but uh, I'm looking forward to that. There will probably be a couple hundred people there. I got a nice shirt to wear. <laughs> Man, I'm so glad I don't have a job where I have to get dressed up. I was thinking about that today. It's like, hey, what am I going to wear this thing tonight? And I just put on my normal clothes. And then I thought, and I grabbed these shoes, 
leather shoes, but, and then I saw they're all covered with mud and I thought, well, I can't wear muddy shoes. And like, do I have any other shoes that aren't really uncomfortable? Cause I don't really have uncomfortable shoes. That's the glory of my life. I don't have a pension. I don't have any savings. I don't have a house. I don't have kids, but I don't have to wear uncomfortable shoes. So I don't know. I guess I guess I'm I'm ahead of the game. I'm not really sure. It depends. If at first you don't succeed, redefine success. That's what I say. So my idea of success is having a job where you don't have to wear uncomfortable shoes. I hope you uh you're you're feeling successful and if you're not just redefine that shit and then everything will be better. So I'm just going to jump right into this conversation with Alan Havy. I hope things are going great for you out there, wherever you are. Thank you for helping me keep this podcast bullshit free, at least commercial bullshit free. I've got my own bullshit, I know. I I inject into it, but uh, I really appreciate the uh, the financial support through patreon.com and or through my Amazon affiliate link at chrisryanphd.com or thatchrisryan.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com. They all go to the same place. All roads lead to Rome. All URLs lead to my website. I'm going to play you out with one of my favorite songs uh, that I've come across recently. Actually, my buddy Aaron turned me on to this. Those of you who remember... uh, then I gave a call out for if you got any uh, house sitting arrangements uh, that you want to offer. Uh, Aaron's looking for a place uh, in the West Coast for the next couple of months, you know, whatever, a week, two weeks, whatever it is. If you got a dog or plants or whatever need taken care of, she's sort of doing the digital nomad thing. So anyway, she turned me on to this tune. It's called Treat Your Mama. Treat your mama with respect. And it's by the John Butler Trio, who are from Australia. I was Googling around, checking them out a little bit. Uh, Apparently, they uh, got their start busking in the streets of uh, Sydney and Melbourne and other Australian cities. And uh, as you'll hear, they are funky as hell. Really good tune. And of course, mama, in this case, is Mama Earth. And we have to treat that mama with respect. Indeed. So hope you enjoy this. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Alan Havy, and I'll catch you soon. Don't need your mama real 
sitting at the dining room table of Alan Havy in Santa Monica, California. Hi, Chris. Hi. Thanks for finding the time to do this, man. This well, you know, it's tough sometimes to get into my dining room. <laughs> the table. I came in through the window. Yeah, yeah. It was, but, uh, it was easy today. Well, this is great about podcasts, too. You know, you can go into my home. Yeah. I got time. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, it's you get in a car, meet somewhere, go to someone's studio. Yeah. It's yeah. access, and that's what's great about technology. Yeah is that we can do just about anything in our homes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was just, do you know who Joe Rogan is? Yeah. Yeah, so I just did his podcast a couple days ago. And he's got, I mean, his audience is massive. He's over a million downloads an episode. You know, and you compare that to talk shows on TV. I don't know how many talk shows on TV have a million viewers have like a million and a half maybe two million some of them really because uh, like yeah. news shows I, I was watching something the other day like news shows very few like you know o'reilly factor or whatever very few of those reach a million well, what about what does uh, colbert get oh god i don't know uh, the, on the tonight show yeah. I mean, that but that's major no, that's, that's one uh, of jimmy the, fallon on the tonight oh show. well yeah what's Colbert, the late show. The late show. Yeah. He took yeah. over for Letterman. Jimmy right. took over for uh, right. Jay Leno. I'm still back in like you know Johnny Carson days. I don't know. Well, we lost that thread to Johnny. Yeah. You know, Letterman yeah. was the last guy. I think when Letterman retired, it was kind of like that's over. Right. Because Letterman was connected to Johnny. Right. When Johnny was connected to Jack Parr and Steve. Right. Allen. Right. So Jimmy kind of bring Jimmy Fallon brings a whole new dynamic, I think. Yeah, which is great. I mean, I I always liked Jimmy. I looked I, I looked online a little bit about your career before I came over, and I saw that you were in the running for uh, Letterman's replacement there. Yeah, well, me and probably twenty other guys, you know. <laughs> and they picked this unknown uh, writer. That he, well, he was unknown to the American public, I guess, but not yeah. to. Uh, the business. Well, but as a writer, he was a writer, right? Yeah, he, he wasn't was a, a stand-up. No, right? he was a writer, and but I, I think we're talking about Conan. Yeah, yeah. Conan yeah. O'Brien. Well, he did a show in Chicago or, or New York where he improvised and he got up. Yeah. And he was more, you know, I'm sure he has some performing back in school and stuff like that. But he got such a buzz yeah. out of getting up and performing. I think he felt that's where I belong. Uh, right. And the story goes. That they were sitting around afterwards. They had seen like 12 of us at the improv here in Hollywood. 
Lorne Michaels was there and, and, and a bunch of his people. And I think uh, it was emceed by, I won't mention the comedian, but they liked the MC. They, 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 they liked all of us, but I think they liked the MC. And the story goes that Conan was at the table. He said, you know what? I should, I feel that I should host this show. So I, I, I can't sit in here and talk about it. And he got up and left and there was a beat and Lauren Michael said, well, what about Conan? And I think that's how it happened. Now, I'm mm. sure there were other things that happened, but... Uh, wow, that's an, a strangely I, I, ethical move. Yeah, I mean, you know, and good for him for throwing his hat in the ring. You know? Yeah. Uh, and I was kind of disappointed. I didn't get it, but I figured the odds were against me. Yeah, well, they always are in Hollywood. Yeah. In any and kind of entertainment as, thing. As my cell phone rings in the background. Do you need to get that? Uh, can we stop for sure. a sec? Sure. I'm sorry. So before your phone rang, we were talking about... Um, yeah, oh, the entertainment. Oh, I was hoping it would, it would go to a stand-up. Ah, uh, right. You know, but not right. necessarily, uh, you don't have to necessarily be a stand-up comedian yeah. to do a talk show. Well, and you did a talk show, right? Right, I had just come off one. It, right. I remember three years on Comedy Center. Night after night? Right. Right. And so I think that people thought, well, I was the odds-on favorite because I had a talk show. Yeah. But I didn't think And so. it was quirky. I, I never saw it. I was reading about it. It sounds fascinating. I mean, I live out of the country, so I'm just like totally out of the loop of anything that happened. Right. But the, the great 80s, thing 90s. is with the Internet, you can go back and see a clip of it or yeah. get an idea of it. Yeah. No, it was fun. It was, uh, it was the beginning of the Comedy Channel. Right. And then after about a year and a half, it merged with uh, Viacom, HBO and Viacom. Right. Uh, and then it became Comedy Central. So it was right. Comedy Central for the last year. But uh, it's something I really wasn't that interested in doing. The talk show? Yeah. I, they were looking for hosts for the Comedy Channel. So yeah. I went in an audition. I was totally apathetic. Uh, <laughs> just uh, smoked a cigarette, called up this woman. I go, I'm, uh, I have a girlfriend, and I'm seeing this woman on the side. I just want to make sure my bath is ready. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, apparently Michael Fuchs, the head of HBO, said, well, that's our late night guy. Right Michael there. Fuchs. I met Michael Fuchs. Yeah. I, that's uh, so weird. That was like 1989. It happened. So yeah. I kind of, you know, I really enjoyed stand-up. I was doing stand-up at the time, and I wanted to get into more acting. Huh. So being a talk show host didn't appeal to me. But then it, when it happened, I said, okay. And I was able to totally create the show on my own. And it was very quirky. You had audience of one. Audience of one. I brought in a, a producer, Scott Carter, another right. stand-up I knew, who now has been uh, with Bill Maher since his, oh, since really? politically incorrect, and now with... Uh, uh, real time. Real time yeah. I've been a producer there. And I got to hire some writers. Yeah. And I had another producer, Sue Fellows, who went on to do uh, uh, the, the show Wilmot, uh, Wilmore, Larry Wilmore. Oh, the Larry Wilmore show. Yeah. 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 And took uh, over for. He took over for Colbert, right? And the Colbert right, Report. Right. Yeah. And then uh, the Higgins boys were there. So Steve Higgins, who's now on The Tonight Show. Yeah. And Al Higgins is a showrunner. And, and Nick Bakai was my. He was one of my writers, became my sidekick. Right. Uh, probably one of the funniest guys I've ever met in my life. Smart, funny. So it was really this kind of, all right, let's, what can this guy do? Let's use him. And he was uh, just a perfect sidekick. And then Ann Ryder, uh, and he played a bunch of different characters. So that was fun. So he came up with a lot of content. And you were doing like three hours a night or something? At the beginning, it was three hours. We we're basically video jocks, and, and that wasn't working. So we boiled it down to a one-hour talk show. Uh -huh. 
with an audience of one, which came from a producer, <laughs> someone's idea from another. I just one guy will rope it off. So, but it did he did he like applaud and stuff? But sometimes they would. But you know, they would just sit there, and I would interview them. They would be a part of the show. Uh, but the uh, the thing was the crew, you know. Yeah. Everyone from the costume designer Deb Shaw to, of course, the AD was there on the floor. But the, you know, a lot of the writers would uh, stand around and, and people, and so I had the same audience every day. Right. So that was tough. Yeah. You know. Um, but you broke down the fourth wall. Yeah. You started talking to them, and you'd like Absolutely. turn to the audience and the camera, and nobody was safe. So what it sounds to me like is you were essentially anticipating podcasting. I no. I mean, you, I just feel not like, not consciously, but by by that that that. That lack of, well, not lack of respect is the wrong way to put it, but that sort of like... Uh, tradition? Yeah, you, you just like what, do whatever the fuck you want. You know, it's totally free. You, 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 it sounds to me like you were in charge. You did what you wanted. You hired who you wanted. You could restructure it however you, your creativity was pretty free because cable was expanding so quickly. There was all this empty space. It was a Wild West kind of place. Yeah, and no one really messed with me because they had other shows to worry about. You know, <laughs> right. There were some exactly. shows that worked and other shows that weren't working, so they had to concentrate on those right. shows. But I was, they would say, you know, one said, because we, we heard the heavy people coming down the, uh, the, the hallway just laughing and stuff like that. Um, we, we had a good time. Yeah. I, was, I felt kind of vulnerable, so I was kind of a hard ass in a lot of ways, but I was really concerned with the quality of the show. Yeah. Um, but the thing was, at that time, Letterman was on, Carson, Arsenio, mm. and they all had basically the same format. Right. Behind the desk, audience, band. We didn't have an audience or a band, so I put my chair in front of a desk. <laughs> I had a little cot behind me, a fax machine. Right. So you're co-opting the whole format. And I basically yeah. talked to... Uh, the camera, the person at home, and I just imagine one person yeah. sitting in a chair watching the show. So that, is this before the Larry, or the what was this, the Larry, oh, the the Gary Shand, the Gary Shandling yeah, show? It was before that. Yeah, it was before everything. In fact, Shandling came on and promoted his show on on my show. Oh, really? Tupac Shakur uh-huh. uh, came on the show. We had a lot of young rappers. And, and, you know, it's funny, when we had young rappers on, I had this theory, I go, I think Muhammad Ali started rap. I think he was the first guy yeah, to there's rap. Yeah, there's and, an argument and, uh, there. had these young rappers on, they looked at me, no, no like that. And then years later, there was a special on ESPN that said, Ali rap. You know, so that was... That I think was, you're right. He fought like a butterfly, sting like a bee. He it, was doing the poetry, and there was rhythm. and Yeah, I was, well, yeah. I was born in 54, so around... Yeah, nine, ten years old. That's when I be, uh, became aware of first Cassius Clay ah, right, and then right. Muhammad Ali. So yeah. there was a three. So yeah, you got to talk about anything you wanted to talk about, yeah. basically, or ask. I had you know people I respected on Gay Talese, mm. uh, my neighbor's wife. Yeah. Um, we talked about. I kept kept them on for three segments. I think the suits were kind of. Well, why does he have this author on? You know, it's. I was basically able to put on the show. Uh, there were people I didn't know, and I do research. But anyone I wanted on the show could basically it's come on the show. Fucking podcasting, man. Yeah, that, that's I guess, what it I is. guess it was. But there was certainly a, a committee, and I had good writers. I had yeah. really good writers. Yeah. 
Uh, Dave Hansen, uh, one of the writers, played Dave the Weatherman, like a creepy weatherman, and people loved him. <laughs> and Nick uh, was the announcer. Did uh, We had the Mobley Hotel where we kept uh -huh. people. But we couldn't fly in an audience of one. We couldn't put them up. But if they could get to New York and get down to 23rd Street, you uh -huh. know, they get their 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> well, couldn't you just go pick people off the street? Uh, sometimes I think it came to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really did. Uh, Pete Slack, who's now a professional photographer, uh, was in charge of wrangling audiences of one. Yeah. And, uh, a lot of times in New York, we get a fan letter and say, hey, you want to come on the show today? We need you. you yeah, know? yeah. But, uh, and I thought that was kind of cheesy, but then over the years I've gotten calls, and I know I've gotten calls from Letterman at the last minute, hey, a guest dropped out, do you have a set ready? Right. That's the way show business works sometimes, yeah. you know, or used to. Yeah. But it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work, uh, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I, you know, I, I had a... You and I met, was it Christmas or New yeah, Year's or Christmas, Christmas at, at uh, Jake's house? A couple months ago. Yeah. And uh, that was, you and I only spoke for about 15 minutes, but a few interesting things happened there. One, I learned that my buddy Len Belzer had died. Right. Uh, I had to break that to you. You broke that to me. Yeah. And I, I had no idea. And then I went back and Googled it and I read the, the articles. And uh, Great you know. guy. What a great guy. Yeah. Um, Anyway, he uh, his brother is a famous uh, comic and actor, Richard, uh, Richard Belzer. Yeah, for people who longest know. running f uh, fictional character in television history. Seriously? Yeah. On what was he on the well? He was originally thing? on Homicide, right? And then they moved that character. Dick Wolf brought him into Law and Order. Oh, right, right. And uh, so that was a, a. There's a guy that got a break late in his career, yeah. relatively. Yeah. And uh, now he's retired. But the other th other thing that happened, I don't know if you'll remember this, but we were talking about, um, I was saying something about how I, I enjoy hanging out with comics because you guys think differently and, you know, nobody gets offended. You don't need to be careful what you say. It's like more freewheeling. I just, I feel much more comfortable in the company of comics than most normal people. And, uh, and... I said something to you and Jake about uh, the film um, The Aristocrats, mm -hmm. you know, because that film's very much about that kind of how comics think differently and uh, offense is not uh, taken. And both of you were like, oh, yeah, that's that's a good film the, uh, that makes the point. And then we went on and talked about something else. And Comedian also, the Jerry Seinfeld documentary. Mm, is, yeah. And now there's a new uh, documentary coming out called Dying Laughing. Mm. Uh, the, oh, I think I saw ads for that. Yeah, Sully McCullough, comedians, one of the producers, got me involved in that. Oh, you're yeah. So they talked to a bunch of different comedians yeah. about what it's like. So, but but here's the weird thing for me. Okay, I went home. <coughs> excuse me. And um, you know, after remembering that, I thought I, I should check that film out. I knew I had it on a hard drive somewhere. So I sat down and I watched the movie again. I hadn't seen it since it came out 15 years ago or whenever it was. You and Jake are both in the damn movie. Yeah. And neither one of you mentioned that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so I got thinking, what the hell is going on here where you're at a party, a film comes up that you're in and you don't say, oh, I was in that movie. And I started thinking like, this is, is this a, this is a, a quirk of LA culture that there's uh like name dropping is so uncool here 
that you don't even drop your own name. I don't. Is it uncool? I, I feel people drop their own names all the time. <laughs> well, maybe that's why it's uncool, because people are doing it professionally, so you wouldn't do it among friends or something. But I mean, like, I've got cousins who grew up here, and they always struck me as sort of smug and, you know, like, whereas... You know, you're sort of a rube if you say, oh, my God, I saw so-and-so at the grocery store. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. We see that all the time. Oh, it's fun to do that. Like I, the other night, I saw Ellen Burstyn oh. at uh, Pavilions, oh, so, nice. which is a local grocery store here. Right. Like, oh, right. that, that's kind of cool. Yeah. You yeah. know, it, it, listen, you're out for lunch or something, and the local weatherman walks in. It's like, hey, wow, it's uh, Hal Storm or, you know, Bob Hal Leather. Storm. Or, you know, it's, it's, there's the weather guy, <laughs> yeah, you know, or yeah. there's the Maytag repairman. But you guys didn't mention that you were in the movie. I was giving Jake shit about it, and he was like, oh, I thought we mentioned it. I said, no, no. you didn't. If people ask me directly, yeah. I'll answer it. Yeah. But um, I was in this TV show, and I went to the bank, and the bank teller said, hey, have you ever seen this show? And I go, yeah, I like that show. And they're talking about, yeah, it's like that character. And I was in the, the show, but I didn't, you know, because I, I, you know what it is? I think with Jake and myself and uh, stand-up comedians, of course, there are stand-up comedians who go out of the, their way to tell you, uh, we get enough attention. Yeah. We, um, we're there with the, when the audience experiences us. Right. Unlike an actor who uh, is doing a series, uh, uh, especially a single camera series where there's no studio audience, right? They don't hear the applause, they don't hear the laughter. Obviously, that's a fascinating point. Uh. You know, people at home, uh, if they don't have a studio audience, like right. uh, Larry Sanders only had a studio audience for the fake show, right? Or uh, you know, like the Louis show, right? Where it's a single camera show, what they call a single camera yeah. show. Um, but as a comedian, and I've been doing it now 35 years right. professionally, right. close to it, um, we get a lot of attention. Yeah. We, we hear the laughs, we hear the applause, and uh, so unless it's going to help me work or someone rings it up, I really don't mention it. Right. Yeah, I mentioned this to, to <coughs> Joe Rogan the other day. We were talking about comedians and his buddy Doug Stanhope, you familiar right. with him? Right. Oh yeah, brilliant stand-up. Holy shit! And really actually, original voice. Yeah. Well, the reason it came up was that Jake had turned me on. Jake and I were talking about this, and he turned me on to Stanhope's podcast, which I had never listened to. And Jake recommended that I listen to these two episodes, the cliffhanger episodes. Did you? Did you? No, I haven't. I haven't. Um, because it's very relevant to this question of how comics as a as a class or a tribe or something think differently because essentially I won't get into the details of it but there's um they're dealing with a lot of um trauma like someone close to them is uh, with the it's called a cliffhanger because it's about there there's three it's it's a um Doug his girlfriend one of their best buddies and that best buddy's girlfriend, the four of them are very close, she's in the hospital about to have open heart surgery. Right. And so they're talking about what if she dies and, you know, and, but they're all laughing. Right. And so the cliffhanger is, well, tune in next week and find out if she's dead or not, you know, and, and they're, they're processing grief through laughter. They're not denying it. They're not using the laughter to cover it up or quite the opposite. They're really getting into it and processing it. 
But laughter is is a welcome part of that process, and I think it's hard for a lot of people to understand that. What we know? call comedians call civilians. Yeah, you know? right. And yeah. I, I there's a comedian who was uh, in the military, still in the military, and he says I, I I'm offended when you know when comedians call people not in show business civilians because that's what we use for people who aren't in the military. And I said. It's so much just easier to say, you know, you know, non-show business people or people who aren't comedians. Right. You know. Well, you have to treat them differently because they don't get that. They're not. I don't with treat them different. I don't think you do. I don't think you have to treat. I think everybody pretty has an interesting sense of humor. And certainly yeah. the audience gets it. But what about offense? Aren't, aren't you if you're sitting at a table with three other comics, aren't you going to be less guarded and careful about, you know, saying something about abortion or, you know, something that normal people, civilians might freak out a bit about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I mean by treat them differently. No, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah you you kind of pull your punches a little bit sometimes. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, that's why I love uh, being a comedian. Yeah. There's not a lot of political correctness, especially right. uh, at the Comedy Cellar in New York in at the New table York, yeah, yeah. or here at Hermosa in the green room. It's that's one of the you know that's half the appeal of working in those clubs. You hanging out with other comics and yeah. listening to what they're up to and. There's and comedians, whatever happens, any kind of tragedy or anything, your mind, you know, absorbs the tragedy and you feel bad. But also, a part of you is going, "What's the joke? What's funny?" <laughs> this is here? an opportunity. Well, you know, yeah. Not an opportunity, just for you, for yeah. my own entertainment. Yeah. You yeah. know, there's stuff I've said in my head I would never say on stage. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but not too much. You know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So your your stage persona, Jake and I were talking about this too, because Jake's stage persona and like Stanhope are very, you know, it's a very different approach to comedy, right? Where I think Stanhope is sort of pushing, trying to always find that line of offense and and saying the thing that can't be said. I don't think it exists for Doug. Yeah. I don't think the line exists for yeah. I really don't. Yeah. I don't know him well enough off stage, but I've seen him work enough. In fact, we were double booked in Vegas one week, and uh, Bud Friedman called me and said, all right, you're going to let Doug uh, be the headliner, and I'll still pay the same. I said, fine, great, I get to do 20 minutes. And Stanhope goes, no, 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 I'm going on in the middle. You go on at the end, because it was true, because half the audience loved him, and the other half didn't. They didn't mm. boo, but they were just kind of quiet. But he had really great stuff. I loved watching him every week. It's the first time I watched the comedian that went on in front of me, his whole act, because I just love his stuff. Mm. I, I like where his mind goes. And, yeah. And uh, so that was the only real time I've ever hung out with Doug. Uh, and it was just backstage. Is there a challenge to going on after someone like that who's pushing limits so much? No. I mean, no. as long as they're good. Yeah, I don't care because I'm different. Right, and well, where that comedian is different than me. Right, you know. Right, uh, you want to follow a good comedian always, huh. because the audience is the energy's there. The energy's there. Right, their their minds and hearts are opened up. Right, you know, Greg Giraldo, who passed away several years ago, is an amazing comedian, and I had to follow him a lot at the Comedy Cellar, a 15 minute spot, um, and uh, the audience once. He got off stage. You were all, they loved him. He took them somewhere other comedians don't. So they were open up to anything. Mm. So I always, I always liked following a, mm. a, a good comedian, as long as they don't go over time. Right. See, when a comic goes up there and steals time and goes past the light and gets selfish, 
that can kill a show. What happens? Does that come out of the next comics time or yeah. the, the whole night it, goes it, later? It, you can go on third and there's seven comics on the show. You've taken time from all those other comics because the show needs to end at a certain time so they get those people out the oh, new for show. Oh, the next in. show. Yeah. Right, right. And it's it's really a cardinal sin. It's the only There's only a couple rules right. in stand-up. Get there on time and get off. What about being drunk or high or something like that? If you can make it work, great. But, mm. you know, that's, that's that's up to you. That's up to you, right? You know, right. I know a lot of comedians have a couple belts or they get stones. So it didn't hurt Mitch Hedberg until the end. Mm. You know, he was usually intoxicated in one form or another. Right. Uh, but, yeah, here's the thing, uh, and this is Comedy 101 lessons. Every uh, joke has a rhythm. Every set has a rhythm. Every show has a rhythm. Mm. So your jokes have a certain rhythm, whatever you do, or your monologue, whatever it is. And then your set, you, you end it. You don't end it when you're done talking. You end it when it's time to get off. So you kind of leave them mm. satisfied. And the show, if you have two comedians that go on for five minutes, and then someone goes on for you know, nine minutes, and then the next three guys go on uh, for the five minutes. Gone. The rhythm's gone. It kind yeah. of, it, to me, in... I don't know two comedians that would argue with this. It, it ruins the rhythm of the show. Right. But some guys are have uh, you know toxic egocentricity, toxic yeah. narcissism, and I understand that it can happen. We all have big egos, but damn, there's so much you get that to steal time from another comedian, you can't pay that back. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not just the time, as you say, it disrupts the rhythm. So you're making everything more difficult, not just quantitatively, but qualitatively I, as well. There are many times I've gone on stage at the Comedy Cellar uh, in New York, and I'd be the last one to go, you only got eight minutes, or you only got nine minutes. Right. Originally, you had 14, 15 minutes. Right, and, the, and your whole set is set up. I mean, I imagine you've got an arc, you've got a, a you know, a point, your a climax, I, and you're... I got a set list, but I can roll with anything to give me, and, and I've been working there a long time, uh, so I kind of take that, you know, okay, I got eight minutes, I kind of right. accept that. Right. You know, it, it doesn't make me happy. Do you have a clear, when you go on, you've got 14 minutes or whatever, do you have a clear sort of an outline in your head, like I'm gonna do the, the bit with the, you know, the ex-wife, then I'm gonna do the you know, parking thing, then I'm, or is it like as you're talking and you see people reacting a certain way, Where something that reminds in, you of yeah, something else? Something or, else comes into your head. Huh. I don't have it in my head, I write it down, I kind of write down an outline, hmm. do this, this, and I, you know, uh, but I like to play the crowd a little bit, right. even if it's a seven to nine minute set. I'll work the crowd a little bit, and I'll go off on a tangent, or someone will say something, and I'll come back uh, to that. But basically, the outline's in my head. Right. So you, you can know, you can paper. play, but you always know how to get back to the path yeah. if you need to. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you're lost, so you just kind of, <laughs> well, what do you do for a living? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, I was going to yeah. ask if that happens. If you, because I do a lot of public speaking, uh, or at least I, I was doing it for a few years after the book came out, and... Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to be on stage in front of a lot of people and almost bask in that moment of like being lost, like not knowing well, <laughs> what the it, fuck is going. Here's the thing: there's nothing like a big laugh. Yeah, it's nice to the ego, but it also gives you time yes. to think <laughs> exactly. and say, "Okay, what do I'm I follow this up?" Yeah, with? yeah. And many times I'm, I'll be on a punchline, and right for the punchline, I say, "What am I going to do after this?" Yeah, I've got the punchline, you know down 
or conversely, if you go up and you do something that always works and there's very little laugh, you know, you can uh, panic. Yeah. And they sense it and choke. I, that happened to me. I just got back. I had, I was in Jersey working at the Borgata and I was having great sets and it was a lot of fun. It was a, like 800 people in the in the room, no waitresses. Mm. It's, it's, so nobody it, moving around. No, and yeah. I was cooking. And, and then right. I went back to the comedy cellar one night and I went over and did my first spot. And I did a joke that didn't work and then I did another joke and it was kind of okay. And I started panicking inside. Mm. My throat tightened up a little bit. Right. I thought, holy shit. Uh, and then... I relaxed and I got a joke out. Then, then I got going. Then I was fine. Right. But it could have easily been, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, like that. So it's, uh, I think comedians forget, um, especially if you're doing well, if you're an established comedian, you're consistent uh, with your reaction. You know, you're consistently having good sets. That were the vulnerability factor. It's always, right. always there. You're bullfighting. I mean, things can go wrong. Well, they're not coming at you. No, the audience is on your side. The bull is not on your side. But your own fear is, you know, because well, that, that many people looking at you, any moment of insecurity or, or like you say, panic. Or you say the wrong thing. Ooh, that's you know? happened, right? But I, I've, I've said the wrong thing on purpose, you uh-huh. know, just to kind of get them just to like stick them a little bit right you know right uh if a line comes into my head i'll usually say it hmm. you know and some people only go really that's where you draw the line what about earlier that other comedian said this mm-hmm. you were laughing your ass off mm. you, you call them on their their political correctness right right do you think uh who was kramer the actor who played kramer? michael richards michael richards i what is he? <laughs> That's not the first time he said that on stage either. Oh no! That happened. I believe someone told me a story, and and again, this is what I heard at the comedy store a couple of years earlier. It was uh, Soul Night or whatever. It's, uh-huh. You know, African American, mostly African American comedians right. in the audience. And he got up and said, "Hey, tonight's Nigger Night." Uh-huh. And a chair came from the back and like knocked him on the head. Really? And he, like went down and then he was. So that didn't get out there. Oh wow! Yeah. So what's he doing? What was he doing there? Was he he he, he didn't know what to say. He was it. I mean, was it like imp- a Stanhope impulse where he's like, "This no, is a, Stan this Hope, is no." It's it's he's not. First of all, Michael Richards is not a stand-up comedian. Ah, uh, maybe he, that's the problem. Well, it's it's a problem when you're up there and you don't know what to say, and yeah. and, and you think that saying that word is going to be edgy, right? And uh, unless it's funny, unless you can say it in context where the audience laughs and they understand that you're not uh, right. a racist, right. that you're, you're saying it to, to make a point, yeah. uh, then it's fine. Uh, but uh, maybe eight years before that happened, he was at the Improv one night, maybe 10 years in, here in Hollywood. And it was me and a couple other comedians and we're getting up and we're, it was a great crowd, we're doing well. Then he got on and you know they loved it when he came on and he did some things and after a while the laughs just weren't there yeah he didn't and he came off stage he goes how do you guys do that i i, I go well you at home you write yeah. down that you know you know 
write the, write down the jokes and then find out. He goes, oh, I can't do that. Yeah, it's like, work, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, he didn't do any work. Yeah, you know. Well, he was used to having other people write his jokes, and he just performed them on a show. Yeah, that was then edited. Plus, people think if they're naturally funny that they a lot of young comics do this lately. I've noticed this in the last 10, 15 years, where they'll get up and they're just talk, hmm. and there's no they kind of ramble and there's no point. Mm. If they have something to say, they'll say it, but there's no, there's nothing funny about it. They're just making statements. Right. And you don't have to tell a joke joke, but you have to get to a point where there's a laugh, where you come to your point and it's a funny point and people get it. Yeah. You know, you have yeah. to structure it in a way, however you want to do it. Right. And um, there should be some distillation, right? I mean, it, you, you can have a good idea, you can have a, a funny idea that initially is 15 sentences, but if if you write it, if you edit it, and you work it, it can get down to five. Right. And then it's five funny sentences. Or you know? it's hey, this is a setup for something else. Right. You know, I mean, there's a, you're constantly uh, when you get an idea. Okay, how can I fit this in uh, to a joke, or how can I make this funny? Yeah. Basically, how can I make this funny? So a young comic asked me uh, recently. I, you know, my stuff goes over here, but doesn't go over there. And, and these other, I see these other comics do the same thing every night. I go, there's nothing wrong with that. If they're getting laughs, I boiled it down. You yeah. laugh, but I told him, I said, some guys just make statements. Yeah. They're not funny. Yeah. And he went, oh, it was like the, the light. He, he said, oh, the dawn. You know, <laughs> I'd come up, he had seen the light. I said, yeah, it's, it's, that's what a lot of these new comedians do. Yeah. Yeah. Not all of them, but, you know. Did you throw, or do you throw your material away at the end of the year? No. You don't do that no, uh, no. If Carlin you, thing? There's No, I'm not George Carlin. I'm not going to yeah. do a new hour every year. Yeah. Louis C.K. does that. Well, because of, uh, of Carlin. Did I, you? I, uh, yeah. Listen, it works for him, it works for him. Yeah. But uh, not everybody's heard everything. And there's some bits I'll pull out if it's apropos. I've done 20 years ago. I'll bring it back. Right. But there's also stuff I'll come up with at that moment, mm. you know. Is that uh, scary? Uh, not really. I mean, if you're, I feel pretty confident about it, or it's a little scary. Yeah. You know, but I'm, you know, I got a lot of fear before I go on. I get stage fright, little butterflies. Do you? Still? Yeah. Still? Yeah. Well, in God, about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, yeah, 13 years ago, like my late 40s, I'd been doing it for a while. I had stage fright for a couple of years where I was just petrified. Hmm. And once I got out there, I was fine. Yeah. But I was just, my palms were sweaty and someone said, oh, see a therapist. Nah. Yeah. And it, and it went away eventually. You know, I still get butterflies, still get nervous, which is pretty normal. Yeah. But Olivier had the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Lawrence Olivier, you know, came later in his theater career where when he played Othello, the actor playing Iago, he said, leave the stage, but stay in the wings where I can see you. Because hmm. I can't be out here alone. Right. Even though the audience right. sees Thinks me, they can't alone. see me, but yeah. stay where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Uh, my Left Foot. Uh, oh, Abraham Daniel Day-Lewis? Yeah. yeah. He was doing a Hamlet. Oh, he freaked out. In the West End. Lost and, it. Well, he saw, thought he saw his dad in the audience. Yeah. He recently died. Yeah. And uh, that was it. He yeah. walked off and never did theater again. Really? Yeah. Nothing? No. <laughs> um, He's a great actor. He is a great oh, actor. Man. Um, but 
uh, theater is. I mean, I came from theater. I studied theater in college. Uh, I was so that's how ask. I got into. Okay, that's because I was going to ask. You know, we're talking about Michael Richards trying to make the move from actor to to stand up, and you, I, I pictured you making the move from stand up to actor, but it, it's actually a, a more complex story. You started it's, in theater. It's a very simple story. <laughs> There's nothing complex about this business. You know, uh, there's no, like, how do they do it? Uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. How do you, like, if you see a slow motion shot and the camera spins 360, that's complex. Yeah. If you're working out a special effect, that's complex. But um, things are pretty simple. People make them more complicated. It started for me in kindergarten. Uh, I was in Catholic school, kindergarten. The eighth graders brought in a huge tape recorder. This is 1960. And where, where were you? Miami. Miami. Visitation Catholic School. Uh-huh. And the nun said, uh, we're all going to uh, speak our names into the tape recorder, and then we're going to play it back. And we were just, oh, my God. How can <laughs> they get the, our voices on that little thing? This is showbiz. Oh, my God. I we're, still don't understand that. Kindergarten. Yeah. Okay? So I'm in the back, and I'm thinking, this is show business. So everybody was going <laughs> up and nah, 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 saying their names. Mm-hmm. So I was prepped, man. I was not. I, I said my name. So when we played it back, I was one of the last kids. Alan Havy. And they, everyone in the class looked at me and go, hey, I nailed my first audition. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I got to play the little priest. Uh-huh. And the girl that did it the loudest and clearest played the nun. Uh-huh. Right before the performance, the girl playing the nun got sick. And I even knew then she can't handle it. She's nervous. Mm. I was ready to go. So they, they plucked out another little girl, and then she played the nun, I played the priest. But what I remember from that is adult, uh, adults looking at me and smiling and laughing. Mm. And I goofed up the line a little bit, and the priest came up and patted me on the head and said he, he was almost as good as I was. And, they all, and I went, wow. Mm. But in 1960, uh, there was a philosophy, children are seen and not heard. Mm-hmm. So you never got that kind of attention from a bunch of adults, ever. And when the, the focus and the laughs, there was something I just loved about making people laugh. Mm. So after that, I was a class clown. Mm. And I didn't want to be a comedian. I wanted to be an actor. But I got into college and uh, studied theater. And a friend of mine, John McCrone, and I started a comedy team that we did. And then I went to New York. He uh, came up shortly after that. We did it for a couple of years around clubs. And then I decided I just want to do this on my own. Mm. We had different ideas, creative differences, nothing heavy. But it just this will be better off if I do, just do this on my own. Right. Because as an actor, you're, you're, they have to say yes. And this is when? Mid-70s? No, this is a 79, 80. Late 70s. So 81. So it's, pretty, it's a pretty good time in New York in terms of comedy. Oh, this it's, is I, I Saturday Night Live heyday kind of. Well, the, the comedy explosion really happened in the early 80s. Right. So I was in the right place at the right time. Right, right. Great stroke of luck. Yeah. You know, it's like I walked onto the rocket ship. Yeah, just as it was taken off. Yeah, yeah, and you could, and plus I had a low nut. And also you could live, yeah, you could live in New York in the 80s without being a millionaire. Yes, you could. I mean, you had to hustle. You know, I was a bartender, waiter for a while. Where were you living? Uh, Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. Uh It happened, and uh, a buddy of mine from college was living there. I became his roommate. We had really low rent. Yeah. He was out of the house from 9 in the morning till 9 at night. 
I got up at 10. I left the house at 8. So we didn't see each other. Perfect. We weren't in each yeah. other's way. Yeah. We had our own rooms. Yeah. There was no living room. He had his room. I had my room. We had the kitchen, a bathroom, and a back room. We stored our stuff. Mm. So we had our own TVs. We had. It was never, hey, I came home. and what, You know, it, yeah. it was... Yeah. We had a, a good life and and a low nut. So if I made 150 bucks a week, I was that was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that you was could. Enough. That's perfect. You could afford. And there, there are a lot of clubs. There were more opening all there the time. There were a few clubs. There were big clubs. There were three. Uh, it, there was improv, the comic strip, and Catch. Catch your rising star. That was in Hell's Kitchen, wasn't it? No, Catch your rising star was up uh, on the Upper East Side. What, what, what was the club in like improv? Was that the improv? The improv. In the, I happened to live right like by the improv. West 30s or 40s? 44th or Street and 9th Avenue. Yeah. I lived on 47th and 9th. Yeah. I bartended on 43rd and I 9th. lived on West 47th. Yeah, where? Uh, in the mid-80s. Uh, I lived in the Diamond District, believe okay, it so or not. Okay, so you were more in Midtown. Yeah, nobody yeah. in the world lived in the Diamond District yeah. except me, I think. That was fun. Yeah. Marathon man. Yeah, you know, yeah, crazy. Fun. Crazy place. But I got anyway. fired from my bartending job, and then I got a waiting job. I got fired from that. Why are you getting fired? Because uh, after a while, I didn't give a crap. Uh-huh. It's not what I want to do. Uh-huh. I was a very uh, underachiever in school. Were you a surly I, waiter? No, I wasn't surly. I was just, in their minds, I wasn't competent. Uh-huh. You know? but, uh, but so Silver Friedman, who was running the improv then, uh, said, why don't you come in a couple afternoons a week and answer phones for us, take reservations. Yeah. So that was a way to make money. I was around the clubs. So I'd get a couple more spots. Right. But then guys would call in from Connecticut Jersey, hey, who are the comics? We need to book this room. So I, I would mention a couple other comics and throw my name in there. I didn't tell them it was me. I said, well, this guy, Alan Havy, is, you know, he's new, but he's new doing guy. pretty well. Why don't you... <laughs> You know, he goes, do you think he's available? Hang on, let me, I'll call him at home. So I put him on hold. I go pour myself a Coke, come really? back, sip it, look at my watch. And, yeah, he can do it. Wow. It's 100 bucks? Okay. Yeah, yeah fine. That's so that's great. the way I kind of booked myself. That's great. I had that opportunity. Nicely up. done. Yeah. Got to play the angles, man. I, it's, it, you know, I didn't think about it till it happened. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not uh, one of those guys trying to work the angles. I don't work people. Yeah. You know, I don't try to ingratiate myself with yeah. uh, people. But you recognized it when it appeared. Yeah, I mean, that's, it happens. There's nothing wrong with that. That's no. great. Uh, yeah, people, opportunist, opportunism, you know, is a bad word, but I, I don't really get it. Like, you see an opportunity, you're not hurting anybody. What the hell? Well, yeah, but let's say a guy uh, gets a sitcom, and then you start buddying up to him oh well like yeah that. so that, cultivating it yes, yeah that's bullshit yeah i always felt that was kind of i don't know i just i mean i i've been friendly with people and i've been hired by uh, successful comedians who you know like louis cast me in a show yeah jeff garland yeah larry david jerry seinfeld had me on right their shows uh ray romano yeah uh you know oh get that part david chris rock yeah. You know, say, hey, there's a party, give it to Havy. And I, you know, uh, so th- that's always nice, right. you know. Right. But I think once I was on Louie, and then once I was on Matt. What was your role on Louie? Because I've I seen all myself. of them. Yeah, I set him up. And you, were, you did stand up? I did stand up. And then I said, hey, why don't you come over to the house, have dinner. And then we set him up with uh, a woman played by Melissa Leo. Remember uh, that one? Then they get out in the car. Yeah. If you don't remember it, but where she's is she's like overweight, and they have that whole thing. No, no, oh, that's, that's not something that. else. Oh, okay. No, I don't want to give away because people haven't right, seen it. But there's right. something I've really... seen it, but I don't remember it. I, I love that if show. I, told you. I love that show. Yeah. I mean, just everything about it. 
And again, it sort of gets back to what we were talking about earlier. The thing I love about that show is, is that it's raw. I mean, I know it's art. I know it's, well, it's written and it's, you know, he's thinking it through and all that. But I just love the fact that it's not, you can see the hands of, of the suits aren't all over it. It right. hasn't been massaged into the formulaic, you know. It's what I like about Seinfeld, too. Yeah. They did their, the show they wanted to do. Huh. Nobody learns anything, nobody hugs. That's, right. That was their thing. And, the, the sh- and with Louie, it's not... And the, they even did the meta thing where George and Jerry pitched the show about nothing. Right. So <laughs> it's the show within the show, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I was really uh, thrilled to work on Louie, and I knew that the industry watched the show. Mm. That's one of those shows that I don't know what the, the numbers are yeah. as far as the television audience. Right. But I knew that Every showrunner, practically in this town, writer, director, yeah. casting director, would watch that show because it was so different. Right. So when I went, uh, I went on, I, I wore a cardigan, and I parted my hair a little bit to the side because I knew the producers of Man Men would watch that show. Ah, uh, really? So when my so when my Mad Men audition came up, it was it was and, and again this is luck. The part was perfect for me. Yeah. I knew this character. It was my dad and friends of his yeah, back in the yeah. day. And I didn't, you know, I didn't wear a cardigan for the audition, but I got the, I got the part. And then they brought me back and extended the part over the next season because they took over my character. Uh, the character I played took over for Don Draper. Right. And they put me in a cardigan. Yeah. Now, I don't think that... You, you had a drinking problem, right? No, the, no. You're no? thinking of Don Draper. Well, I know Don Draper, but I mean, everybody had a drinking problem on that show. But did you, your character got fired or there was My some fair, tragedy involved with your character? No, 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 no tragedy at all. No tragedy at no. all. Uh, I'll no. have to go back and check that. Yeah, it's, it was, uh, he was, he was loathed by the viewing public, the character. Why? Uh, they felt that uh, he was uh, not respectful, that he was not creative, uh. you know, would basically... Uh, he was voted the uh, the most hated boss in television history by the New York Post. <laughs> <laughs> so, and when I'm playing the character, uh, a few weeks afterwards, uh, Matt Weiner called me. We're talking about something, and he said, "I don't know why everybody hates you." And blah, blah, blah. I said, "Matt, you created this world as dysfunctional as some of these characters are. It's a world that people have loved." And this guy comes along, new creative director. Draper's out, who was this creative genius. Oh, genius, yeah. And they figured, this guy's a hack. Right, you know? right. And, and you were just do it by the book. Kind yeah, of yeah, the character was, I mean, listen, people said, how was it like to work on Mad Men? It was effortless. It mm. was because the writing was perfect, the direction was clear, and the other actors were rock solid. Yeah. You know, like, take a tennis ball and just bounce it off a wall. I right. Mean, they were all there. They had their characters down. Right. It was a great group of, of actors to work with. There was, uh, God, I didn't run into any ego, hmm. any divas. Really? Everybody was just happy to be there and in, enjoying their work. Yeah. It was it was fantastic. And they knew it was, I mean, it wasn't the first season, right? They knew, no, no. They it knew was, it was a hit. Yeah, they had already won four Emmys right. for Best Drama. So they're really happy to be there. Season six yeah. and season seven. I was there the last couple seasons. Yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic. That was a really good show. I enjoyed that a lot. And then I saw you after the party. I, I was watching, uh, you know, you're, you're this guy, you're like that thing where, you know, your friend buys a 
certain car and then suddenly you notice that car everywhere right you know, that, right because uh i first i had the aristocrats thing and then i was somebody recommended this uh show to me the man in the high castle right so i got that i think it was netflix or amazon or something amazon. Yeah. i was watching that and there you are in that doing your origami your creepy <laughs> scary origami guy i got lucky again yeah you know i auditioned for another part on the show uh, i didn't get that but then they liked me they brought me back and auditioned for that part and i got that part right the other part was one episode out oh, this really? one was four episodes yeah and more interesting in my opinion more interesting the so it was a lot it was a lot more fun <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. spoiler alert, you know. <laughs> I didn't say what edge. Yeah, I got tossed over the edge. Over the edge. And so people were coming up to say, hey, congrats, there's a second season. I go, ah, yeah, no, not for I'm not me. there. <laughs> Unless they have a flashback, yeah. I am gone. Yeah, yeah. So are you doing anything now? Are you doing any... Uh... Right now, I'm doing this podcast. Oh, well, this is a big moment for you. I'm, it's I'm it's sure. always a big moment. And see, <laughs> when I'm done with this, once like, hey, I heard you on this podcast. Yeah. yeah. Okay, this will get you a big role, I'm sure. I got stuff coming out uh, that I've already shot that hasn't come out yet. Yeah. So, so that'll be fun. Yeah. And anything uh, you can talk about? Or sure. Is that uh, the only thing I couldn't talk about was Mad Men, because uh -huh. he had uh, uh, NDA non-disclosure, mm. which is so valuable to an actor mm. and i didn't know it at the time because usually you you do a show what are you doing oh, I, i'm doing it i'm doing mad men oh great one's you know bop, bop, bop. and then you talk about it and people want to know about it and they hear about it they want to talk to you about it but i had been on season six and people said hey there i bet you they bring you back and no it doesn't work that way that show always goes like a year ahead but they did bring me back i was not allowed to tell anyone i lied to everybody except my wife mm. So that's an interesting place for a husband to be. Yeah. And people say, hey, you on this year? And I said... <laughs> the opposite of normal life yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Lie to, you lie to your wife and tell the truth to everybody. Um, yeah. So people would come, hey, you on this season? They bring you back. I said, I haven't heard. That's and So I had to contain mm. that. And for an act, it was, it was powerful. Because once I was on the set, once I was working, it was like, oh, I can... Yeah, I'm on the show because yeah. I'm here, you know? Yeah. So I didn't tell my best friends. I didn't tell any of my family. Huh. And uh, it. so when it happened, I got more attention than if I would have blasted it on Facebook. Right. And that's why in this age of self-promotion, Twitter, Facebook, me, 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 that if you, and I tell actors, if you get a job, don't tell anybody. Let them see it. Because it could cut you out. Mm, that's happened to me a couple true, times. That's true, right. And it's much more powerful branding, for lack of a better word, if you just surprise everybody. You know, yeah. you know, with it because they talk about it more and more, and it actually makes them happier. Right. You know, rather than they kind of anticipate what you're going to do on the show and they look at, oh, I didn't know you, were, or they, you know, if you just show up, oh my God, like if if people know you're going to a party and they're waiting for you to come to the party, and then you get there, hey, when did you? But people don't know you're going to the party and you just show up, you know, yeah. hey, right. like that. And it's, they're really it, happy to see you. Yeah, it's yeah. the same thing. So try to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> and, and a comedian told me that back in the day, Uncle yeah. Bertie, uh, Bob Altman. He uh -huh. was a contemporary of Carlin's and Pryor's. He yeah. was a, did Tonight Show and he worked. He said, you get a part, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell anybody. They could cut you out. They could fire you. Don't say a word. Just, you know. Right. And it was great advice. It is good yeah. advice. It's always hard hard advice to follow. But, uh, yeah, when in doubt, say nothing. That's 
words to live by right yeah. there. Hard yeah. for a comedian to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, understandably. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and Matt Weiner, it was a brilliant move on his part, not to have to have that. I don't know if he got it from the Sopranos that he worked on, but he said secrecy is the market value of this show. Mm. And the ending, which was shot a year before it came out, nobody talked about it. It did not get out. Mm. That's impossible in this town. That Pepsi thing or Coke, Coke it was a Coke, Coke thing, which I think. I don't know if it was shot there, but it seemed to be a reference to Esalen Institute at Big Sur. It was shot there. Was it shot there? Yeah. 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 And that's a great thing about AMC, you know. Uh, they gave him the money to, to shoot up there. They gave him a quarter million dollars to run Tomorrow Never Knows, the, the, uh, the, the Beatles song on Revolver when it came out. Wow. They valued that show Yeah. Uh, between uh, Lionsgate and, and AMC. Yeah, because that's the show that really put basic cable dramas on the map. That was the first big breakout that made Breaking Bad uh, possible and Sons of Anarchy and FX now right. with all the great shows they've come out with. Mad Men. You look at The Walking Dead. It's right. the highest rated show in television. Really? It's a basic cable show. I hate that show. I, I watched it with a friend of mine's really into it. I, I watched it with her that the season opening of the last one. It was so brutally horrible. Well, you haven't seen. You gotta go back. It's like re, it's like picking up a book and reading chapter thirty-three. Yeah, but you if can't it's do that. but if it's but you, yeah, yeah, you have to go through a the guy fire. with a baseball bat just beating people's brains in. I just can't. I, I mean, were I, they zombies? No, they were. Okay, I don't they were the, know. I haven't seen the whole. Oh, you haven't run. seen this season? No. Yeah, yeah. It was. It reminded me of a film I saw years ago called. Um, Henry, I think. Oh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Serial Killer. Brutal film. Dude. I had the director. I walked out of that. When I had the talk show in the back, Uh back in the day, uh, one of the producers came up and said, by the way, you're having uh, the actor who's on the show in this movie. Here's a tape of the movie. You never really got VHS. She goes, careful, it's really scary. I said, okay. Hmm. So I went home and I popped it in. I got so scared. I got up. I made sure all the doors were locked, and I couldn't stop watching it. Brutal film, brilliantly done. Wow! Brilliantly acted. It's one of the few movies I've ever walked out of the cinema. Oh, I, 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 it, I just couldn't. I, I understand. It's horrible. I had a tape. Yeah. I was able to pause it. Yeah. Catch my breath and and lock yeah. the doors and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, it's, it's a, it's a it's a it's a film, and, and people said, should I watch? It? I go, be very careful. Yeah. You know. See, the thing is, there, there's some things I don't want to, to, to be able to watch. There's some things I don't want to be able to tolerate. Well, that, and you, you know? drew the line. You walked out. Yeah. It's up to the individual. Yeah. When I was a young man, like a Clockwork Orange, when it first yeah. came out, I was a big Kubrick fan. Right. And the film was very important to me, still is. I made sure I was there the first night, and I watched yeah. it. Brutal film to watch. But now, if I watch a clock record, it's real. It's much tougher, right? Because we—it's uh, rape is not a concept. It's a real thing. Yeah. Violence is—it right. it, it was necessary as an artist to show violence. This is back in the seventies. I right. felt the golden age of cinema, certainly. Yeah. Uh, in our lifetimes, but as you get older, and in you're in your fifties. Yeah. I'm sixty-two. Yeah. There's some things that we've seen it. It's brutal. And even though it's brilliant art, right. you know, there's a movie Irreversible, really tough to watch, Gaspar Noé, yeah. brilliantly done. 
uh, but very difficult to to witness because it's so real. Yeah. 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 I mean, the thing about Clockwork Orange is it's about violence. It's about, you know, becoming uh, accustomed to violence and what that does to your mind and all that. So I kind of forgive it because it's a, it's an examination of the thing that it's doing. Yeah. You know, well, it's it talks about you should you need to have a choice and you take a guy who's violent and you rearrange his brain. So he can't be violent if he if he tries to be violent he becomes ill and that itself is a form of violence yeah that, well yeah that rearrangement i remember that scene where they've got his eyes propped open and yeah and they're playing beethoven and yeah. so he, he yeah. becomes adversely you know he comes sick anytime he hears beethoven yeah yeah which is which in the movie they said the punishment element yeah perhaps you know <laughs> oh it's just one of those things that happens. yeah my I, I have a buddy who has uh, a replica of the giant penis in his house Remember the penis that they beat the people with? Yeah, he you hit it and it kind of rolled right, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah it's very fucked. Kubrick was kind of a kid in that way. He was like a naughty boy. Yeah, he liked that stuff. Yeah, yeah. You, you ever meet him? No, no. Have, no. You, have you been on like big production films? Yeah, I just did last a couple of years ago I did Hail Caesar. Oh, with, the Coen Brothers, Brothers thing. Yeah, so that's another one off. The I I just watched that two weeks ago. I must have seen you in that too. Yeah. Damn, where were you? In that? My father-in-law saw it. He goes, "I thought you were in the movie." I go, "I was." <laughs> <laughs> I was the uh, one of the ministers. There was a minister, a rabbi, a Greek Orthodox. Oh, church. that's right, sitting around the table yeah, trying to yeah. get the approval. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I did see you in that. I'd yeah. forgotten about that. Yeah. yeah. So that was. I've been wanting to work with the Coen Brothers oh, yeah. since uh, Blood Simple, which came yeah. out early eight. A long time ago, yeah. So, you know, if you that's another thing about this business. If you stay in it, work hard, keep right. going, eventually you get to work with a lot of people you've always wanted to work with. Right. I saw a play in 1980 uh, called How I Got That Story, starring Bob Gunton, who was uh, people know best from The Warden in uh, Shawshank. Mm. He played 24 different characters in this play, and Don Scardino who is now a, a top uh, director, he was an actor at the time in, uh, in television and film and on Broadway. Uh, he, was, he played this uh, part of a photojournalist and Gunton played all these different characters in Vietnam. And I walked out of that play, it, the play just blew me away, it was great. It reminded me how important theater was. Every now and then you need to be reminded of what good theater is. Yeah. And I said to myself, walking out there, I'm going to work with those guys someday. Well, five years ago, I worked with Bob Gunton on uh, a sitcom. And uh, this past year, I, I did an episode of Two Broke Girls, and Don Scardino directed it. Hmm. So, you know, it's it, stuff like that. Does, it doesn't happen the way you want or in the time frame you want. Right. But if you keep working, going, you, at the very least, get to meet people organically yeah. you know, that you've worked with. Like the other night, at the Hermosa, John Cleese was oh. there. Oh, really? Yeah. And I had I had met guy. him uh, years ago. We had done a, the same Letterman ah, together. So you're backstage. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was he was very gracious, nice. His daughter Camilla is a, a stand-up, so that's why he came to the show. Ah, right. And he couldn't have been nicer. And I met a couple of the Beatles by just being in the business. Really? Yeah. I did a movie in the late '80s called Checking Out with Jeff Daniels. It was produced by Handmade Films. So Harrison, George Harrison, was there huh. hanging out, talking to us. He played the guitar. We, we hung out. And then on he, a letter... Didn't he produce The Life of Brian? Yeah. Handmade Films. Unbelievable. And then <laughs> uh, I did a letterman and Ringo Starr was on. 
Uh, so I got to briefly meet Ringo. So it was, you know, you don't have to stand outside. Yeah. You can stand outside their hotel room or, yeah. you know, yeah. or you can just keep going <laughs> in this business. Yeah. You know, you, you get to work with some really cool people. And, and I hear stories like this all the time from my friends who are not only comedians, but showrunners or writers. Um, they get to hire, yeah. you know, somebody that they've admired since they, since they were a kid. Right. You know, it must be great. You have a sort of an ideal level of fame, or at least it seems that way from the outside. I never want to. It's like people look at me and they don't know. Did I go to school with this guy? Right. Is he the local weatherman? Right. You know, there's something familiar, yeah, but they can't quite place it. Or so and not, other people say they know me from, you know, right. Mad Men or Curb or right. Man in the High Castle or or whatever. But you know, it's not. I don't have to worry. You know, you're not getting harassed. And, no, you know, people. No. Thank God I'm not yeah. that uh, yeah. successful. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. I mean, you know, a lot of people who are I mean, you're talking about the Beatles or whatever. Um, one thing that I've sort of been surprised by being in L.A. and getting a chance to hang out with people who are very successful or well-known or whatever is how nice most of them are. You know, you sort of, I would assume that there's all this ego and there's all this sort of pretentiousness, but it seems like creative people, a lot of them are just really fucking grateful. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, I've, I've met very few egotistical idiots uh, in L.A., and I used to think that's all that there was here, you know. No, there are, but there's some... Uh ironically aren't that famous that's what that's what it is that the the sort of higher up you go the the nicer people seem to be i don't it, know it, depend, it depends on the individual i say overall yeah yeah people hey, listen if you're an actor you're just happy you're working right, right. if you're a comedian you know you're getting laughs you're working yeah. if you're working in this business yeah because it was drilled into us before any of us got into the business as a young kid, oh, it's a, are you crazy? Yeah. Especially in my, back when I got in, you know, I always wanted to be in show business since kindergarten. Right. That's it. I, I decided at about eight years old, I was going to move to New York and be an actor. That was it. Mm. I had already made up my mind. Uh, so along that way, when people said, what do you want to do? Well, no, you're going to starve. I go, yeah. Well, you know. Then I'll starve. Yeah. Yeah. High school, uh, uh, guys, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'm going to go major in theater. And then I'm, after that, I'm going to go to New York. And he said, that's crazy. You, you shouldn't do that. He goes, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, four years later in college, uh, counselor, I was already theater major. I want to go to New York. He said, did you ever think of being a stand-up? I said, yeah, I thought about it, but it's not something I want to do because it just seems real hard and brutal. But once I got with the comedy team and went to New York and I was walking by the improv, I go, ah, this is, I got to do this. Now's the time. So I kind of really had a desire to do stand-up like after college. Mm. It wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't a kid. Although I would, was a class clown and I'd get up and do any kind of verbal Report just so I can get up in front of people and make them laugh. Mm. I really enjoyed that, found value in that. But as a living, I thought no, it's it's too hard. Mm. So, but you no, know, people tried to talk me out of it. Yeah, you know, people don't realize because because you look at it from outside and you say, oh, it's all just about success and applause and da da da. They, I used to live in this mansion where everyone who lived there was a fashion model except me. Right. So people. So see, all guys. 
and went. It was half and half. Yeah. Wow, that yeah. must have been fun. It, it, or were they all neurotic and? The women were. Now that's the thing. The guys were pretty cool, um, but it's a very different kind of world for guys. They make much less money. They start when they're older. Uh, the girls, the women start when they're 11, 12 years old. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure. A lot of them are Eastern European or whatever. They're expected to, you know, that's gonna, they're going to be a meal ticket for the whole family. And they gotta, and they got to stay skinny, their bodies. And they're getting all this weird, creepy attention from guys two or three times their age. And they don't right. know what's going on. And so they get distorted. They're pulled out of school. And it's a rough, rough road for women. But my, my, the point I was going to make is that you know, we look at them from outside and we say, well, that must be great. You know, it's all about everybody, you know, kissing your ass all the time. But in fact, a fashion model's life is 99 no's for every yes. They're just all day, you know, every day. Just no, no, you're too tall. You're too skinny. You're too blonde. You're too dark. You're too this. You're too and it's that. all about their look. Yeah. And it's all, you know, imagine how hard that is to have people you know walk into a room well you've done auditions you know people are looking at you mm, thank you we'll get we'll get back to you and yeah but it's it, it there's 27 reasons why you don't get a part a uh, casting director was it yeah uh it has nothing to do with you right brian cranston gives the best advice just look google brian cranston auditioning advice hmm. it's like a two-minute thing he's at some function they pull him off to the side, and he just gives his advice. It's it's the best advice I've ever heard. And what is it? Just do your thing it's, and don't worry like about it? It's like you're there. Yeah, you're there to act. You're not getting paid, but you're there to act. Do the best job you can, and when you're done, walk away. Forget it. And, and yeah. I kind of came to that conclusion about six, seven years before I had seen that video, and it just kind of reinforced my own ideas. It's good dating advice, too. Yeah, good for anything. Be who you are, and they—they they, they, it works for them or it doesn't. And some if it people doesn't though, work for you them. say, don't be who you are. <laughs> no, you know, you, some people say, I'm just going to be who I am. No, 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 no. I got to be me. No, no you don't. don't. No, no, don't. don't. <laughs> Take a look at you. Don't be you. You might want to modify people you. People say, hey, I'm just going to be honest. No, uh, don't be honest. Yeah. I'm going to say what I feel. Don't say what you feel. <laughs> it's like those people say, I wouldn't change anything because then I wouldn't be me. You're like, yeah, yeah, but maybe it could have turned out better. You, know? you, could, you have the power. You're the only one that can change you. And you need to look at yourself. Yeah. It's like uh, M. Scott Peck in, the, in a, a book, The Road Less Traveled, uh -huh. which I read as a young man, uh -huh. which I advise anyone to read. Uh, you have to look at your maps, you know, every year or so. Look, look what you're doing, look at the people you're affecting. Mm. How are you, what is your contribution to the world? What, mm. what are you doing, in, you know, how are your relationships? You kind of alter yourself and, and step out of yourself and kind of look at the effect you have yeah. on people. Do you know the story, it may be apocryphal, but the, there's a story about Jack Nicholson's first audition. Uh, apparently he came out here as a writer he was trying to make it as a writer not as an actor but obviously he was a very good-looking guy he was sharing an apartment with some you know wannabe actors and uh it was going really bad he wasn't making any money he was getting ready to go home and one of his roommates said well look you know there's this audition why don't you just come with me maybe you'll get a a bit part or something and at least make some money you know so he went and he read for this part and the producer said, Mr. Nicholson, we don't need you for this, but if we ever do need you, we'll need you very badly. Wow. And I always think of that as, you know, like Cranston's advice or whatever. It's like, because he does what he does really well. 
And it's not because he is who he is. He is who he is, and he's not. He doesn't have a great range as an actor, but he's really good at being Jack Nicholson. But since he started, certainly in the Roger Corman films, his range has gotten much better. Yeah, no, he's he's, grown, he's matured. Yeah, and, and he's worked. And you could tell this guy yeah. does not just want to. Yeah. He could he could have always played the Weisenheimer. Right. You know, he could have always right. played the wise guy. But I mean, he was yeah. great as Jimmy Hoffa, and I didn't see Jack Nicholson as Jimmy that. Hoffa. Yeah. You know. Apparently, he was offered the role of uh, the Hannibal. The, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. yeah, and he turned it down. There was a scheduling conflict or whatever. Yeah. But I could really see him sure. <laughs> knocking that one out of the park. Yeah, I, I, listen, I'd bet on Nicholson for anything. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, this is what I heard. I heard he was a huge Mad Men fan. Oh, really? And I think Matt Weiner, I read this where he said, you can play any part you want. Yeah, you bring him in. The corporate. And there was that little bitty fantasy in the back of my head. Oh, oh wouldn't shit. that be great? Could I do a scene with Nicholson? Yeah. Is that too much to ask? Yeah. Apparently it was. <laughs> you know. But I got to work with Robert Morse, yeah. who I uh, admired. Uh, Harry Hamlin. Yeah. I was oh, a big Harry fan Hamlin, of his. Yeah. From L.A. Law, yeah, and, you know, and, and of course, the wasn't whole... he? He was in Sex Lies in Videotape. Was that Harry Hamlin, or no. am I thinking of someone no, else? You're thinking of someone else, uh, Peter Gallagher. You're thinking, oh, uh, okay, another dark-haired, good-looking guy. Okay, right. You, ha- you hung around with models too much. Yeah, I know. They really they're they're all up. the same. Yeah. Good-looking guys. I don't know. One, they're dime a dozen. Yeah, and then the other thing that was weird about Nicholson is. Um, he so he did five easy pieces, or, or he did was it Easy, easy Rider? Rider was his breakout role. Yeah, he had a, a cameo, or not a cameo, but a small role yeah. in that. That whole wink, 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 the thing where he yeah. you know, take a drink. Um, but uh, then he did five easy pieces, I guess. Yeah, that was great film. Oh. Love that film. I love the 70s. Yeah. Ambiguous endings. Yeah. Sad endings. Sex. Like, good, interesting sex. Yeah, nuanced. Well, there's a lot of sex scenes now, you see, and you go, I, I really don't need to see this. Yeah, but I, but that's the thing. I don't mean hardcore. I don't mean explicit. I mean yeah. interesting. Organic. I mean, the, uh, Five Easy Pieces. He and Sally Struthers. Yeah. Yeah. Great, a great really uh, erotic scene you know the postman always rings twice that's two minutes i I was sitting in my car when you called me texting with a friend masturbating to that scene (laughs) almost i was texting with a friend and she said she was baking and i said oh now now you've reminded me of that scene in five easy p or in uh the postman always rings twice she said what do you mean I said, you've never seen that? She said, oh, I said, you got to see it. She said, okay, I'll watch that this afternoon. Well, you you got to watch the first one first. With uh, Garfield? Garfield, yeah. Lana Turner. Yeah. That's yeah. sexy. Nobody takes her clothes off. Uh, it's really steamy. Is it the same thing in the kitchen and the No. The, the no, fresh but it's still, it's there. Jessica Lange? Yeah. Holy yeah. moly. She... I, I, read a, I read an interview with Nicholson. A friend of mine saw the movie, got a hard on. <laughs> You know, so so I knew the scene worked. Somebody you know? told, I don't know if it's true, somebody told me that he kept messing up that scene so they'd have to keep reshooting it. I don't know. And then he got the outtakes for his private uh, collection. I, I really? I, I, that sounds <laughs> like bullshit. All right, so anyway, the story I was telling about Nicholson is, so he does, does this movie and then Life magazine commissioned some journalist to do a profile on this new actor, up-and-coming actor in L.A. And the guy goes uh, and, you know, does the due diligence, finds his uh, birth certificate. I guess he wants to see if he's lying about his age or whatever. And the name on the birth certificate listed for the mother is the wrong name. He, He assumed that his sister 
It was his sister, but actually he was raised with his sister, but that was actually his, his mother biologically. Yeah. And then, and Jack didn't know this. No. You so you know the story. Yeah. Oh, okay. This yeah, is this true. Is, this, yeah, this has been out. For oh, a while. okay. He, he's right. talked about it. Yeah. So he's like 31 or something when he finds out because right. of the journalist. And then he he's in Chinatown, where that's the story in Chinatown. Yeah, kind of. What a strange yeah. twist that is. Yeah. You ever met Roman Polanski? No. I have I have a friend whose parents. No, met. I've met most people in this business. I haven't met them. <laughs> I've walked by a few. <laughs> I, w- I walked by Mike Nichols about a dozen times in New York, yeah. just on the street. And you recognized them? Of course I did. Say anything yeah. And yeah. Bo- no, I didn't. I don't. I don't bother people. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, Bob Dylan sat in front of me at a, a show at the Bottom Line. I didn't say a word to him. Yeah. You know, I don't. I don't. I, I hope they appreciate that. I, I, I don't think. It, I, I don't even think they think about it yeah. really. You know. I met uh, Peter Gabriel once. I've told this story in the podcast before. I sat next to him for about 15 minutes. And I had this idea, you know, kind of like, you know, I'm not going to bother him just because he's famous, whatever, you know, Bob Dylan sitting in front of you. Well, I'm sitting next to him and we start chatting. And of course, I love Peter Gabriel. I I mean, of, of living musicians, he's probably the one I respect the most. But sort of out of deference to him being the super famous guy who gets harassed by people all the time, I just talk with him like this guy. Yeah. And it turns out that I know a guy he was in high school with. So we start talking about that and the conversation just meanders into, you know, just normal two guys sitting here killing 15 minutes. But at some point he started to he started to get uncomfortable. Yeah, once you knew who he was. Once well, I knew from the beginning. Yeah, but yeah. once you acknowledged you knew who he was. Yeah, and I never was like, dude, you know, your music has like, changed yeah. my life. And then it was too late to do it because I was already committed to the we're just a couple of guys thing. And, you know, it bothered me. For years it bothered me. And finally, What bothered you? It, that you didn't say anything? It, that I didn't say anything and, like, and, and that I made him uncomfortable. And I could sense that I was making him uncomfortable. You made him uncomfortable because? Because I didn't. Well, th- this is what confused me. And I talked about it on the podcast. And then somebody wrote to me and they said, look, the reason he was uncomfortable and the reason you're still bothered about this is that you were inauthentic with him. That if you, most famous people, who gives a fuck? They're famous. That's not, that's no reason to admire someone. Right. That's just a part of the gig that they're in. Right. But you actually do admire this one person. Right. So the authentic thing to have done in this case would have been to be like, look, I don't want to bother you, but holy shit, you're, you, you know. No, 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 What no, you've no. done no, is wonderful. No, that would have been the authentic thing no, for me to say. No, it wouldn't have been the authentic thing to do. It would be a fan thing to do. But I am a fan. Okay. Of him. All right. Okay. He's like the only guy I'm a fan of. That's all right. <laughs> That's all right. You don't, you don't, don't blow smoke up the ass. You're talking about movies. But it's not smoke. It's true yeah. admiration. Okay, great. <laughs> Who gives a shit? <laughs> Admire him from afar. Oh, but I, yeah. I was sitting next to him. So I, what? I didn't go up to him in a restaurant. I was seated yeah, next to him. I know. I know. <laughs> Listen, if you if you see him walking by, you go, hey man, love your work. You're from your car, and you know, wave. That's one thing. But if you're sitting next to him, you don't. You know, I, I know, you did the right thing. You think I did the yes. right thing? Oh, wow. Don't you, question yourself. You're making me feel better about feeling bad. That's, I guess that's a good thing. Um, all right. Well, listen, I, 
you're not selling anything. You got nothing to sell. You got no no it's website. Me. I'm selling. It's all about me. It's all about you, baby. Yeah. AlanHavy.com. Go to my website. Oh, you do have a website. Yes. Yeah, right. so when I'm playing, I got to. Well, that's yeah. right. You're on tour. You're. You, do you I, go I'm out? On tour. Here's what I do. I I, I live in L.A. Mm-hmm. I do Hermosa. I do. Uh, I did Vegas for a while. I don't do Vegas anymore. I do Tahoe. I, I go to New York to Comedy Cellar, Borgata, Jersey. I do uh, as minimal touring as I can so I can stay in town to audition because that's what I came out here to right. do after the talk show right I said I want to concentrate more on acting and for that I have to be in a way and still continue to do the stand-up still made appearances on Letterman and uh, but to be in town and be available for auditions I have a great manager now Naomi Odenkirk Odenkirk Provisorio Entertainment they send me out and audition. Bob Odenkirk? His wife. Oh, really? Yeah. And she's a terrific and manager. And he's... Is, when's that? He's on uh, the, the, the lawyer thing. Uh, Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul. Fantastic. Thing. You're such a civilian. Fantastic yeah, show. Yeah, I love that show. I love that oh, show. Oh, man. It's it, such a great character. Yeah. And, and they did a bad. really good job. Oh, he's, he's I mean, Normally, a spinoff is going to be like, eh, whatever. But It's a prequel. It's really well done. Yeah. Yeah. Great. But anyway, that's... So I really lucked out in uh, getting a good manager, and I get into rooms, and certainly being a Louie and then Mad Men, yeah. I've been able to, at least they know you when you come into the room. And Curb, you're in Curb, right? Yeah, I did a couple Curbs. Yeah. That was before. Apparently there's another one yeah, in production now. Yeah, they're doing now. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah it's, uh, so it's been good. You yeah. Know, I, I, I have the almost a perfect balance of stand-up and acting yeah but the acting jobs i still have to audition for every now and then i'll get an offer to do an they just know you and yeah they they just want to cast you so that's been great yeah when you don't have to audition but you know this is what i wanted to do since i was a kid you made it man yeah i really did i made it when i went to community college Hmm. when i went into from high school into theater there these are the people i want to be with this Hmm. is what i'm doing and since then, it's just been, you know, grinding it out, hard work, a lot of luck. But the harder you work, the more you persevere, the more opportunities you get for luck. Yeah. Talent's the last thing. Yeah, you, you do have to have talent. Yeah. But if you just hump it and out there and grind it, you get better at what you do. Right. You get opportunity. You, you work. I've worked with a ton of great people. Yeah. And uh, hopefully the best is yet to come. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. I really Thank appreciate you, Chris. it. Chris. Appreciate it. Good luck with this. Thanks. Hey, if you get more uh, listeners because of me, kick some money back. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does. Please direct them through the link on my page, chrisryanphd.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. 
Reddit.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal? If you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.